When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and joining me are our Transfer Market Insiders and Pundits Extraordinaire, Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, he memorably arrived playing the piano, but Manchester United are yet to dance to the tune of Alexis Sanchez as he struggles to make an impact at Old Trafford. We assess what Mourinho and Woodward do with their underperforming star. Paul Pogba wanted United to attack, 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 but would that be a wise strategy against the team Phil Neville claims is the best to ever be promoted to the Premier League? We take a look inside at how Wolves have become a team to be reckoned with. Manchester City are in the market for a dynamic midfielder and Leon's Tongi and Dembele may fit the bill. We look at what the 21-year-old powerhouse could add to Guardiola's midfield. And in the spirit of the Ryder Cup, we create our own five-a-side dream teams, Britain versus Europe. Okay, guys, well, we're going to start with Manchester United and Alexis Sanchez. Obviously, he signed for Manchester United in the uh, January transfer window. It looked like he needed some time to settle and to bed into United's style. And many thought that this season, he would start to really kick in for, for United. But it just hasn't happened so far. Ian, what do you put that down to? Um, well, first of all, uh, Sanchez was um, surprised. I don't know why, but he was surprised to turn up at Old Trafford and find that um, the way that the team was effectively model around him at Arsenal was not going to be the case at Manchester United and I'm pretty sure no one told him that that was going to be the case anyway but um, if you think back to his time at the Emirates uh, almost all forward possession from middle to final third was deferred to Sanchez and he was effectively both goal scorer, goal provider and playmaker um, in an Arsenal side which admittedly was not performing at a very top level but Sanchez was their standout player and there's a reason for that it's because he got the ball more than anyone else now, Mourinho does not set his team up around one player. He never has. And um, it was something which, you know, it hurt Cristiano Ronaldo when, when Mourinho was in charge at Real Madrid. Um, but Ronaldo came round to Jose Mourinho's way of playing. Sanchez so far has not done that. Um, I've recently spoke to one of uh, his teammates. And um, so apparently in his personal life, he feels quite isolated in Manchester. Um, he doesn't. He finds it difficult to walk his dogs. I know that sounds a bit, you know, flippant or whatever, but I think anyone who follows him on social media will know how much his dogs mean to him. And so uh, when he lived in Hertfordshire uh, while playing at Arsenal, that was never a problem. He went out of his back garden into big rolling fields and the dogs were bounding around happily, etc., etc. So not just that, there's uh, also issues playing-wise, um, he feels like uh, he is under pressure for his position, which of course he has been. He's not played every game. He feels under under pressure for the ball, which uh, is certainly the case as well. And you've got players like Pogba on the team who obviously is a dominant personality on the ball as well. 
And also, um, I think, you know, it's, it's we go back to the old days of Carlos Tevez, don't we, who played for both Manchester clubs, um, complaining about the weather, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think he's had a little pop about that as well to some of his friends. I think one maybe one of the worst things for Sanchez is he had the opportunity and indeed had a deal done to join Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. And he decided to go to Manchester United for a bigger salary rather than join City, who were clearly <clears throat> the team to beat and the team on the up. And he's had to watch Manchester City at close quarters from across the, uh, the city and see them you know, win the, the, the Premier League playing a style of football, which Sanchez would have loved to have been involved in. And instead he chose the money. And now I think all of those doubts and, and anxiety are coming home to roost. And it's not, uh, it's not something that's going to be turned around easily, Johnny, that's for sure. Uh, he needs to work hard and get his head down. There's no doubt he's a very, very talented footballer. But he needs to apply himself properly and, and, and more than anything else, fit himself into Mourinho's formation, structure, tacticals uh, side. Because if he doesn't, then, you know, United would be within the rights to try and cut the losses and just sell him. It's not the money they would get from him um, because obviously he's a player on the wrong side of his 20s. And um, it's the fact that they could cut his salary. Um, and that is a major factor in terms of United's wage bills. So I think it's something which will develop over the next three months up to the January window. They bought him last January. Um, if he's not performing uh, at a level which justifies his salary, Duncan, I think that you know United would be interested in unloading him in January, if not next summer. I think um, you've got to factor in um, Ed Woodward here. And as, as we've discussed in the podcast before, Ed Woodward's reluctance to um, sell uh, or, or release players that he's signed um, under his period uh, at chief executive, and particularly the guys who've been the, the big headline deals. And you know, you've got to remember that Ed Woodward, uh, in his first uh, investors meeting, after the purchase of Alexis Sanchez bragging about how the um, the piano video had had X number of social media interactions and done so much better than Neymar's unveiling at PSG, etc., etc., etc. There's there's def- there's an issue for United in that Woodward does not want to be seen to have made mistakes in the transfer market. Um, I mean, the information you have on on Sanchez's discontent at Manchester is important. Um, I think people can easily forget that footballers are humans and um, the mental side, their their, their happiness off the field. And I think we should also note that Sanchez's relationship broke up um, recently. He he announced that um, to the public a few weeks ago. Um, All of that factors into how they perform in the field. Um, And and it is important uh, for them to be um, content, happy, settled, uh, away from football, so that they can they can uh, play their best in what's a you know becomes a more challenging sport uh, year after year. Um, I think the judgment on Sanchez has um, doesn't really factor in that he arrived in January at the end of the January window, played his first game on the on the final day of January for Manchester United. Um, you know we've talked before how. Mourinho doesn't like to sign players in January uh, because he, he, find, he knows players find it hard to bed into his system when they don't have a proper pre-season. 
um, and he's rarely had success, um, immediate success with the players he's bought in the January window and he even talked about that post um, signing Sanchez. Um, the Manchester United tried very hard to ensure that Sanchez's close season would be as good as possible in that he didn't have to go to the World Cup. Um, he took extra time to train ahead of pre-season and then um, a, a, a ridiculous clerical error on the part of the club resulted in him missing out on a good chunk of their pre-season tour to the United States uh, because of his um, tax issues in, in Spain. He wasn't uh, immediately granted a visa for the United States and had to remain behind in Manchester uh, while what was already an understrength squad trained in California. And that's one of the things Mourinho, one of the many things Mourinho was unhappy about during pre-season because the reason he doesn't like January signings is he likes to have them in for his whole pre-season training programme where he does a huge amount of tactical uh, work on the, the training pitch and kind of beds in his ideas of the way um, the team should play and how individuals should contribute to the team in those training sessions. I've, I've, I've actually watched uh, two weeks of, of training in, in California when he was at Real Madrid. It's fascinating how, how they work and the detail they go into. Um, and you can see from watching it why it is important to the players. And suddenly Sanchez lost out on that. He also um, picked up an injury very early on in this season, which cost him a game. Um, I don't think he's 100% fit yet. Um, and he's playing with this, um, you know, constant threat of criticism whenever he makes one bad touch in the ball. Uh, you know, it's got to the stage where he is the target um, for obvious reasons. He has the highest salary um, at level with Paul Pogba at the club. He has one of the highest salaries in, in world football. Um, you know, we all know the story of how Manchester United outdid Manchester City to sign him, uh, and that was done via financial reasons. So all of this brings extra attention on the player, um, which makes it harder for him. I don't think he's a bus flush. I don't think it, it's um, it's necessarily um, not going to work. Um, I've seen elements in his play this season which are promising, um, but then you know you you have errors like on Saturday where he decides to take a free kick and and instead of playing playing across, he tries to shoot into the top corner and misses by a big margin. And, and that kind of thing makes it tough for him. So it's definitely something to pay attention to. Um, and and it's, it's certainly something that the media will, Manchester United fans, will be paying attention to match after match as the season progresses. Ian, is there similarities here between the signing of Sanchez for Manchester United and Torres for Chelsea in that it's a player... 28 or 29, they should be in their peak, but perhaps just on the downward uh, swing in terms of their career and extremely expensive. Does it highlight the danger of going for players at, at that age? I suppose there's, all, there's danger in any investment, uh, in serious financial investment in a player of that age, Johnny. Um, the difference with Torres is that he had a um, chronic knee injury, which if anyone at Chelsea had bothered to check with anyone at Liverpool or anyone in the Spain national team, they would have found out that investing £50 million, which was the record transfer at that time in the Premier League from one English club to another, um, it was it was an investment not worth taking. Um, the other thing is, and this is where the similarity is correct, and you're correct in, in identifying it, is that at Liverpool, Torres was the player 
that the that the entire team was organised around to to utilise uh, to utilise his specific talents. So all ball was played forward from again middle to final third or from the number ten or from the wings to Torres, who was always a target for possession, always a target to score goals. Hence his prolific record at Anfield. And again, I spoke earlier about how the the, the Arsenal team was set up to provide. Sanchez with the ability to have as much possession of the ball as possible in order that he could provide goals, assists, etc. etc. Um, also, of course, um, Torres, again, someone that was very settled uh, on Merseyside, uh, very happy with his home life, etc. etc. Sanchez was likewise in, in, in London and with Arsenal and then moves to Manchester and finds a, a quite an alien environment. Uh, as Duncan you know, reminded us, his relationship uh, with his partner has broken up. Um, clearly, that's got something to do with you know maybe location and where they are and Sanchez's mood um, over the last few months, which you know you can understand might be a bit darker uh, for a guy who is generally regarded as a kind of you know happy-go-lucky kind of person. And I'm reminded um, of a recent episode of uh, of the debate on Sky Sports when um, Liam Senior and Steve Sidwell uh, talked about uh, mental health issues in football and how. Um, it's people uh, who are fans and outside of the game just assume that when you get paid a lot of money for doing something you love, then nothing in your life can go wrong. But what Duncan said is absolutely correct. If your home life, if your if your life outside of football is not good uh, and it's not what you want, it's not you're not content. Uh, whether it's to do with where you're living or um, your day to day routines, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, then footballers are as prone to you know getting a bit down as any of us in that sense. And if football is not giving them the release that they need to get them away from uh, the Monday Blues or the Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday Blues, when, which is obviously the case for Sanchez at the moment, then they will underperform. So I think there's a few very, uh, let's just say, complex issues that have to be resolved. For me, a club like Manchester United, with their resources and their um, human resources, should be able to like take Alexis Sanchez under the ring and say, look, what can we do to make your life easier? What can we do to make your life better? What can we do to get you playing better on the pitch? Because when you've got an asset like him and you're paying him that huge amount of money, then you need to get the best. And clearly that's not happening. I think, I think Johnny, you make a good point about transfer fees. And I think it, it simply is inevitably the case when, when fees are really high. Obviously, that's not the case with Sanchez, but... In his case, it's the salary that's really high. But when there's big, big money put down for a player, it comes with an extra level of expectation. If you just go down the list of um, record transfer fees or highest transfer fees paid in football, the number of failed transfers or failing transfers is is, is very notable. I mean, looking here, Osman Dembele, Dortmund to Barcelona. Guy can't even do keepy-ups in his uh, in his in his. Uh, introduction to the Barcelona fans, hasn't done much on the pitch since Gonzalo Higuain um, uh, moved on by Juventus this summer on a, on a loan. Um, James Rodriguez, Monaco to Real Madrid, a deal that never really worked. Angel Di Maria to Manchester United. Van Gaal uh, decides to tell him uh, one of the best dribblers in football that he shouldn't dribble the ball and he, he wants to, to leave and United are forced to, to, to sell him on inside a inside a season. Um, Kaká, bought by Real Madrid for um, a near record sum in 2009, with similar to Fernando Torres. He had a, um, a chronic 
uh, knee problem, which was never solved, and his career, sadly, which was an exceptional one at, at the early stage of his career, um, never recovered. Um, Fernando Torres, as you mentioned, the, the previous record signing by Chelsea, Andrei Shevchenko. Um, you can even look at guys, um, I think one that's, that may turn into that, which, which happened in the last year, is Imeric Laporte at Manchester City. Um, I don't see anything in his play for City that justifies the 70 million euros um, they spent to sign him. I see a player who backs off um, whenever a, a forward runs at him who's not quick on the turn. Um, I see a, a high-quality passer, and I see why Guardiola uh, likes that, but um, repeated mistakes in the central defensive position, some of which were obvious in the game against Leon last week and, and cost the team. And that one, to me, looks like a, a very expensive, um, and he's on extremely high wages, Virgil van Dijk-level wages, um, transfer that, that, that promises uh, or has a, a, a huge amount of risk in, involved in it. And that's just it's the nature of the beast. When you spend that much money on a player, it adds to the expectation and it adds to the demands on the player and actually can result in what might have been a reasonable transfer if it had been done at a more realistic um, fee, turning into a, a failed transfer. Duncan, you mentioned wages. I just want to take you back to something you said there. Um, you stated that Pogba and Sanchez are on the same wage and that's not really what's been put out there, is it? What's the story on that? Well, obviously, there was a lot of, I mean, if you were to go back uh, to that January period um, when Sanchez moved to Manchester United instead of Manchester City, you'll see, first of all, that Manchester City leaked um, the details of Sanchez's wage demands to the press, basically to justify the reason why they weren't going to be signing the player. Um, they, what Sanchez, as we, 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 we talked about this in detail in the podcast, is what Sanchez and his agent asked for. They said, look, you are prepared to pay, um, I think it was 60 million was the, the offer they made to Arsenal in the summer window, which Arsenal accepted, um, but had pulled out the deal when they weren't able to get Thomas Lamar from Monaco. Um, you are prepared to pay that in the summer. Uh, the fees now come down to uh, 35 million for you. So we want the extra 25 million um, on the value of the contract, either as a signing on fee or loyalty bonuses or in wages. Um, so the deal is gonna cost you 100 million previously over the course of five years. Now it's gonna be 125 million. You're not paying uh, as much to Arsenal, so pay uh, the rest of it to us, which is not an uncommon demand for an agent to make because ultimately the deal is about total cost rather than um, uh, what the wages will be. Anyway, Manchester City weren't prepared to do that. Manchester United were prepared to do it, so his his wages went up. You then saw a cascade of reports where I think he, his reported salary went as high as um, £600,000 a week, maybe even higher than that, according to some reports. It seemed to go up every two days when you, you looked in the newspapers. It's not as high as that. It is exceptionally high. It is the same money as, as Paul Pogba is getting net. Um, it is the case that Mino Raiola saw those reports and went to Manchester United and said, you're paying Alexis Sanchez more than my client. My client is the most important player at this football club. I expect my client to be upgraded. Manchester United said no. Um, it is the case that Sanchez's uh, salary is a point of issue 
in the sense that the big renewal that Manchester United have to handle at the moment is David De Gea's. And David De Gea is saying, I've been player of the year at this club for the last five years. Um, I've, I'm of huge importance to this club. I expect my contract renewal to be on the same level as Pogba and Sanchez's because I've proved myself to be important. Whereas these guys have come in and they haven't proved themselves to be as important as me. But, um, yeah. There's no question he's on he's on big money he's on huge money but he's not on quite as big money as some people want to depict one of the more interesting aspects of the weekend's action was paul pogba's comments after the 1-1 draw uh, that manchester united had with wolves where he talked about in veiled terms the need to uh change the style at manchester united with the quote that they needed to attack 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 is this a further indication of the developing rift between Mourinho and Pogba, or is it about uh, the player trying to engineer himself a, a pay rise or a move come the transfer window reopening? I was very surprised when I saw those quotes um, because you don't usually see a player come out and um, talk after they've had, a, you know, questionable element in their performance during the game. And Pogba played well against Wolves, one of his better performances, an absolutely sensational bit of skill to set up Fred's opening goal. Um, but with United in control at 1-0, um, they should have been 2-0 up by half-time, you know, superb save by Rui Patricio to stop Fred scoring a second. Start of the second half, they come out, they've got most of the possession, they're attacking, they look like they're going to score another goal. And then Pogba allows himself to be caught on the ball by Ruben Neves, um, one of the best midfielders in the Premier League. He's demonstrated himself that very quickly. Um, doing... The kind of uh, sort of dummy with his back to uh, an opponent that you see Pogba making frequently, um, it quite often pays off for him against lesser opponents. But Neves uh, spotted it, took the ball, uh, quickly moved possession forward, and, and Wolves uh, fashioned a, you know a very good goal from there. But you know Pogba was to blame for uh, United handing over their lead. Um, it was notable that um, Jose Mourinho in his press conference was asked about the way that the team had conceded the lead. And he said, it's a situation where the players know perfectly that they, Wolves, press in midfield. These two Portuguese boys, they're both the kind of player that likes to bite, that likes to sh shorten distance to press. We know they don't give long time uh, for, for the players to have the ball, to turn to one touch, two touches. You don't have much of that. So you concede in a situation that is even harder to accept. So Mourinho had clearly, and, it, and this is very Mourinho-like, had clearly warned the team not to give the ball away in those situations to Neves and Jean Moutinho because he knew they were the two guys who were most dangerous on the Wolves team who could hit um, long, accurate passes to their quick wingers um, and, their, and their good centre-forward and, and threaten to score against them. And, and Pogba... Um, either ignored that or felt he was so good it didn't matter to him. Um, but for Pogba then to come and speak to the press where he could have been questioned about that and he could have been challenged on it is unusual. And, and Pogba's actually been talking a lot post-match um, compared to his, uh, his first two seasons at the club. 
I think um, someone, someone said the other day that what Pogba said about attack, 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 and the need to, to play a different way, it sounded like it, it was the, it'd been uh, put to a focus group and put to um, political polling. It was, it's probably the perfect message if you wanted to get um, elements of the Manchester United support on your side um, and, and also to get a lot of media attention. That's the it's the message that that is the, the fundamental complaint about Jose Mourinho's time at manager is that they don't attack enough. Um, it would not surprise me in the slightest if his agent Mino Raiola had suggested to Pogba that the next time Manchester United drop points, that that would be a very uh, uh, powerful message to place from his lips um, in the media domain. Um, we've seen. Uh, again and again, since um, the relationship with Mourinho um, foundered, uh, Raiola pushing to have his player transferred. Um, he's offered them to all the top clubs. Um, we have Pep Guardiola on record about um, Raiola offering him to Manchester City last season. He wanted uh, the story out that Barcelona wanted to sign the player in the summer. He wants the story out that Juventus would like to, to bring the player back. He clearly believes it's in his and Pogba's interest to have um, the story that Pogba is wanted by other clubs, might want to leave to go to other clubs, and that there's difficulties uh, with his situation at Manchester United repeatedly talked about on, on places like this and talked about in television, radio, talked about in the press. Um, so all of that I think was interesting and um, I think it's also going to be fascinating this evening after the, the Derby League Cup match to see um, if Jose Mourinho says anything about that, and if he does say anything about it, exactly what he does say about it. I think um, it's one of the lines you do not cross if you're a Jose Mourinho player to effectively criticise, albeit by inference, the manager's tactics. And I also think that in the context of the last three to four weeks, where we've seen Mourinho openly uh, sort of conduct a massive charm offensive to directly towards the Manchester United fans, applauding them after games. He gave the little boy his coat, etc. Uh, after one match, and you know, they in return they sing his name home and away um, to let Ed Woodward know that if it comes to a choice between the two of them, there's no choice whatsoever that they will take Mourinho. So for Pogba to openly challenge uh, Mourinho on his tactics, and as Duncan said, effectively. You know, you're asking a kid in a shop if they want to have some chocolate or some sweets. When you ask Manchester United <laughs> fans, do you want the team to attack, attack, attack? It's a very, very easy um, sort of political statement to make, which has resonance amongst uh, the Manchester United support. They, in fact, if you remember, during the Van Hal era, that was the chant from around the stands at Old Trafford, attack, attack, attack. So he's effectively quoting the fans in his challenge. I think Mourinho would be inwardly furious and I'd be very surprised if he didn't speak to Pogba about this because that's the one place you do not question the manager and it's on tactics and, and how the team is set up. And I don't think Pogba will play in the Carabao Cup, not because of what he said, uh, although that will be a contributing factor. Or maybe Mourinho will put him out just to punish him, I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's, it will be very interesting to see, but um, I do think there's... a. A Mariola inspired, let's say, um, kind of uh, ongoing battle. Uh, very interesting to read in this morning's Tutu Spot, which is uh, 
effectively the mouthpiece of Juventus in Italy, uh, published in Turin, um, uh, the equivalent of what Mark is like with Real Madrid. It was them who, who published um, this morning saying that uh, that Pogba definitely wanted to return, uh, in quotes, home to Juventus to play with Cristiano Ronaldo in the Juventus team, which is destined, again, quote, to win the Champions League with these great players in it. Um, and that United, uh, in turn, would be uh, chasing Franco de Jong, uh, uh, young Ajax midfielder. So they're even not just saying that Pogba wants to go, but an Italian newspaper are telling Manchester United who actually they're going to replace Pogba with, which, again, is maybe a little bit a step too far, but it's, it's absolutely true that Pogba spent the best years of his life on and off the pitch in Turin with Juventus. And if he is truly that unhappy back in Manchester, then that would be the obvious place for him to go. Although I do believe that the player himself has an ambition to play in Spain at some point in his career. So what we have is this ongoing friction, the intriguing subterfuge and, and um, subliminal sort of warfare between the, the player and the manager, which is not going to go away, um, partly because Pogba is used to winning. He won four Serie A titles at Juventus. And so far, he's not even had the privilege of challenging for a Premier League title at Manchester United, which he believed was what was in the brochure when he was sold coming to the club. Yeah, so, yeah. Ian, what if Pogba's right? Because there'll be fans listening to this podcast saying, these guys are Mourinho shells, look at the league table, Liverpool are already eight points clear of Manchester United after six games, which is a lead that looks already unassailable for them. And... Perhaps Pogba's right. Perhaps United need to be more attacking. How do you respond to that? Well, I'm not sure about that, Johnny. Liverpool have played Spurs um, so far in terms of you know teams who will challenge them. They've got a lot of big games coming up, including Chelsea next weekend. I think we have to judge Liverpool on playing against opposition who are at their level, including Manchester United, Manchester City. Uh, and Chelsea, as I said, this weekend. So I, I don't think the eight points thing is unassailable by any means at this early in, in the season. What I think is that Manchester United, um, the, the dressing room, probably are asking themselves, why is it that we've got all this talent, all this investment, one of the best managers in the world, and we're not challenging for the Premier League title? That's something which all players will ask themselves and ask each other. And of course, dressing room, you know, kind of uh, whispers and banter, et cetera, et cetera, do have an effect on how a team uh, play when they turn out to, for games on you know weekends and, and, and midweek. So that's something Mourinho has to overcome. He has to restore the belief and faith in the players that they, they will be challenging at the highest level. And, um, and that effect, that, that will catalyse. And I think it will also, um, it will give them more strength of character as well if they start winning matches consistently. Dropping points against Wolves at home is not going to do that, that's for sure. Um, and I'll just add one last little thing. is, is Maybe maybe Pogba was taking a little leaf out of his, um, his manager's book when he, um, he went and spoke to the press about attack, 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 because it took attention away from the fact that he made the mistake which led to the Wolves' goal. Classic Mourinho tactic, you know. Go and poke someone's eye out at Real Madrid if you've just when you've just lost a, a classical. Well, you know, go and speak to the press when no one expects you to, and talk about the philosophy of football, uh, so that people won't talk about the fact you made a mistake. So maybe, maybe you know, Pogba's learning 
from the old guy uh, rather than just criticising him. Well, I mean, let's let's do the analysis of attack, attack, attack. I'll give you a team who played attack, attack, attack against Wolves this season. They're the best team in the Premier League, uh, Manchester City. The result was exactly the same, 1-1. Um, I don't think Manchester United didn't attack against Wolves. I think it was a, it was a very good game of football to watch, um, very balanced game. Um, Wolves were playing on the counter-attack. The Wolves definitely started the match better, had the better chances um, early on. But United had no shortage of attacking in that match. What they did have was a, a, an inability to implement things when they got in good positions. There was a lot of individual errors up front, um, not so much from the midfield, but particularly from the, the, the forward line. So uh, the idea that they played that game defensively is, is just wrong. Um, and then you can also take the game where they did attack, attack, attack against uh, top opponents this season. That was the Tottenham Hotspur match. Um, and yes, they were unfortunate not to score early on in that game. Yes, they had much the better of the first half. But with their attack, attack, attack strategy, their defence got exposed, as it has been um, pretty much every time Manchester United are set up against high-quality opponents um, trying, to, trying to push um, high up the field and press high up the field. The danger is the centre-backs get exposed and they concede ridiculous goals, which is what they did against Tottenham. So, um, yeah, it's very nice, the idea that you go up against every single opponent as Manchester United and the opponents see the badge on the shirt and they go, it's Manchester United, they're going to attack us, we're, we're going to throw these points away, we've got no chance. Badge on the shirt doesn't win anything anymore. And if you play attack, attack, attack in modern football against teams like Wolverhampton, against teams like Tottenham, you better be very, very good because otherwise you're not going to come away with the, the points on the consistent basis that you need. Um, and Manchester United aren't very, very good yet. And they aren't very, very good because of personnel. Well, let's address Wolves because Phil Neville said at the weekend that he felt that they were the best ever team to be promoted. Ian, uh, do you agree with that? Have you been impressed with them so far? I was. I watched a lot of the Championship last season, Johnny, and <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, I saw a lot in Wolves then, which told me not only that they'd be promoted... Uh, with some ease, which they were, but also they were already well equipped to not just survive but but thrive in the Premier League. And I think we've already seen that. Um, I've worked with a lot of clubs in the lower half of the Premier League whose whose aim is survival um, when it comes to recruitment and uh, and sales, etc. Um, and Wolves are a totally different animal. Uh, we all know that uh, George Mendes, um, who is Jose Mourinho, Cristiano Ronaldo's agent, and probably the most effective football agent uh, in the world over the last decade. And by that, I mean in the way that he conducts transfers and does his business. Um, his involvement at Wills has obviously been come under scrutiny because some of the other championship clubs last season felt it was an unfair advantage. Well, you know what? Get yourself your own John George Mendes and see what he can do for your club is what I'd say to them. Because <clears throat> in that recruitment um, uh, drive and philosophy that they have uh, implemented, they have brought in players like Ruben Neves, and then, again, masterstroke, Rui Patricio, uh, Jean Moutinho, whose value we saw at both ends of the pitch at Old Trafford last weekend. And they are a team who are built on a very strong uh, football philosophy of their manager, Nuno Espirito Santos, and they, they obey and, and effectively carry every instruction that he gives. And when Duncan talks about personnel, uh, problems at Manchester United, and rightly points out that Mourinho um, warned his midfield players about 
the Wolves' press, which led to their goal, and yet they didn't carry out their instructions properly, that's going to make Mourinho tear his hair out. Because he is used to, as a coach, being obeyed and being um, uh, impressed by his players carrying out every single little detail of his um, preparation and instruction before a match. And yet his players didn't. But you could see that Will's players did and do and completely trust in their manager. And that comes, do you know what, from winning the championship. When you win things with a manager, with a philosophy of football, with your teammates, because let's face it, there's not, not everyone in that Wolves first eleven is of the quality of Neves or Moutinho. There are players in there, you know, um, Connor Cody, who spent a lot of his time uh, in sort of fairly average championship clubs, just trying to scramble, survive, or trying to just miss out on promotion, etc., etc. So what is what's the, the coach there and the coaching team there have done is they've turned Wolves into a formidable opponent for any Premier League side already undefeated against the two Manchester clubs they've got, I don't think um, any problem or any reason to believe that they're going to be in relegation trouble and from all of the football people I've spoken to who are in the bottom half of the Premier League um, this season they would agree that Wolves are one of the teams who are promoted who are not going to be in trouble I think we all agree Cardiff City are already in trouble and uh, um, maybe Huddersfield, who obviously came who up last season. Who could have foreseen season. that? Pardon? Who could have foreseen that, that Cardiff City would be in trouble with Neil Warnock? No, well, exactly. <laughs> a, man who's, a man who's never managed to keep a team in the Premier League. Very true, very true. But look at the difference in style, though, as well, Johnny, between, you know, Santos and, uh, and, 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 and Warnock. Warnock's very old-school dinosaur. Oh, yeah, we'll just lump it, you know. That's a little bit unfair. But they didn't invest a lot, and they've not invested wisely in recruitment. And I think they were just basically on a wing and a prayer and hope they would stay up and it doesn't look too good already. But with Wolves, there is a project. There is a plan, both short-term, medium-term and long-term, to make them into a team that will sustain their Premier League status, but also potentially challenge for a Europa League place maybe two, three years down the line. And you know, Duncan's uh, excellent uh, piece in the Sunday Times uh, last weekend that the value of Ruben Neves now €120 million Euros, doesn't surprise me at all, not just because Duncan Rotten is very good with these things, but because he looks like a player who is young and is going to get better and better. And, you know, we've said this before, if Guilfrey Sigurdsson's worth 50 million, then Ruben Neves is definitely worth 100 plus. So they've, they've planned well, they've recruited well, and they're going forward and upwards. And do you know what? I think Phil Neville is maybe just on the money there. Maybe they are the best uh, promoting we've seen so far in the Premier League era. I think they're a, they're a fascinating project because they, I see parallels with Abu Dhabi's ownership of Manchester City. Um, they're owned by a very affluent Chinese company. Um, they're not in it for the glory of the football. They're in it as a as a project, and they're prepared to delegate to. Um, people who understand and have uh, a history within football and a history of success. That's what Abu Dhabi has done fantastically well with Manchester City. For them, it's a political PR project. So what do they do? They hire the best they can get, allow them in all departments of the club the freedom to act and the financial support to work uh, uh, better than the, the competition expect them to succeed. If they don't succeed, they change and move for another top person. They don't get involved. They don't, they don't try and micromanage from the top. They're not interested in 
Shep Van Seur has watched one Manchester City game live in 10 years of titular ownership. He's not interested in football. He's not there for the glory. It's a project for Abu Dhabi. Wolves has a similarity in that Fosun International have said when George Mendes, uh, they wanted to buy a football club in, in England, which was driven by the Chinese president pushing uh, rich uh, businessmen and companies in China to invest in football. And they, they hired George Mendes to find them an appropriate club. Mendes set them up with Wolves at a reasonable price. And then the project became one in which they um, trusted Mendes to do a lot of their signings or bring a lot of players to the club, not all of them by any stretch of the imagination, but they trusted him. And Mendes then is confident that he can bring a player like Ruben Neves to Wolves, have him playing for a coach like uh, Nuno Espirito Santo, who he knows the style of football he'll play. He knows that that style of football will fit, will fit Ruben Neves. Um, and the chances of success and, and the, the owners will buy in and allow that to go forward in that way. They won't interfere. So the chances of success for the coach, uh, for the, the owners, for the club and for the player become so much higher because everyone's bought into the project in a fashion that they trust each other and they delegate expertise to the people who are best at it. When it comes to securing players, they delegate it to the agent who's established themselves as one of the foremost agents in football. They, they delegate, he then delegates coaching to a guy who's, who has a, a strong track record of coaching in Portugal and Spain. Um, and, the, and then everything becomes so much easier than at most football clubs where these, these parts are usually in conflict and they're usually dealing with one individual agent on one particular deal. And then that individual agent decides his client's interests are more important than the club. We've just been talking about Paul Pogba for 15 minutes. That's a great example of it. Mino Raiola decides that Manchester United isn't the place for Paul Pogba to be anymore. And he goes about trying to, to get the player out and causes huge issues there. Um, talk about that Ruben, Ruben Neves, the interest in him. He's gone from being a uh, not a first-choice team, first team, first choice pick at Porto to being on the recruitment list at Manchester City, Barcelona, the top clubs in the world are looking at him as if we're going to be signing a, a number six midfielder, he is way up that recruitment list. Um, and the pricing has gone to 120 million euros minimum because the Chinese won't sell. Um, he's, he's a key part of their project, medium to long term. The only way he leaves is if um, the offer is sensational and Neves decides it's better for him to be elsewhere uh, as a footballer than, than he is at present. At present, he wants to be at Wolves because Wolves has been good for him. Um, got a new contract in the summer, central to, to their midfield, playing alongside Moutinho. You look at that team, it, it's, I, I, I was talking about this the other day, it looks like a Mourinho team in many ways, which probably isn't a surprise as Nuno was a, was a Mourinho player. But they're set up in that classic Mourinho, FC Porto, Chelsea first period, um, Inter style, which is very strong defence, good goalkeeper, high quality technical, tactically intelligent players in midfield, two quick uh, wingers, and a, and a big forward who's also capable on the ball. That's, you know, that's, that's the Mourinho um, plan A um, and has been for years. And uh, they're probably better set up to do that at the moment than Manchester United are. That's the big irony. And, and it's easier for them as well because everyone 
There's no expectation that they go and dominate games. There's no expectation that they have the ball and they overpower every opponent. They're allowed to play um, a style that suits them, which is be defensively strong and counter-attack against the better sides. And every time they get a result, they get praised to, to the heavens. So they're in a very good position at the moment. Ian, is the biggest problem with the Wolves project that it's based in Wolverhampton without being disrespectful? <laughs> well, it doesn't seem to be, Johnny. It doesn't seem to be. I, I, I think what Duncan said there about the unity of purpose is, is a huge factor. When you've got um, a core Portuguese element who are providing not just the coaching, but the skill sets and the, um, and the quality on the pitch, then everyone else wants to make that work for them as well. So, you know, there are nice places to live in the, in the Birmingham area and around Wolverhampton. There's no doubt about that. Um, so for players in terms of where they live and, and house themselves and everything else, I don't think that's an issue um, as long as things are going well on the pitch. It only becomes an issue um, as we spoke earlier with about Alexis Sanchez, when things don't go well on the pitch for the player and he starts to look at the rest of his life and thinks, well, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be either. So I think what we're seeing is a bit of a change in the landscape with, with this Wolves project. And by that, I mean um, the intelligence with which the plan has been put together and then executed. Um, ultimately, we'll, we'll pay dividends for the Chinese owners because they'll have some players who they bought at low, low value uh, um, prices, but then a bit, you know, we'll, we'll sell on for a massive profit. And in doing so, it can then choose to reinvest that in the club and make sure that the club uh, and the project goes forward. So with regards to um, what what the future holds for Wolverhampton Wonders, I, I can only see it being positive. I, I just don't... There are no negatives there. And you you cannot ever underestimate the, you know, the, the, the positive energy of playing well, enjoying your football, winning football matches, drawing football matches against the likes of City and United, etc., etc. And the effect that has on the morale of the players and their families and everything... Everyone's happy, tra-la-la-la, as um, you know, Jetsy Belowski used to say. I, I don't think it's a, it's really an issue that they're based in Wolverhampton at all. Um, and you just there's a, a very interesting interview with Jeff Shee, the the chairman um, of Wolves in Mail and Sunday, I think the weekend before last, and he was quite explicit that they think they can they can uh, match and surpass Manchester City's project. They think they can do it quicker. Uh, potentially, because they won't make as many mistakes as, as Manchester City um, did in the initial years because they've got better people on board earlier on. I don't think that's impossible. I mean, there's no reason why Manchester City um, should necessarily have the fifth highest revenue in world football. Um, they're not a great historic club. They're not any more of a historic club than Wolverhampton. Wolverhampton had won more um, English titles uh, prior to Fosun's ownership uh, than Manchester City did prior to Abu Dhabi's ownership. Um, Manchester City have been uh, had a dedicated, uh, loyal, passionate, humorous fan base um, prior to the takeover, and they were famous for that. But they're not. They were not a global club. They're not. They're not a Manchester United or an Arsenal or a Liverpool who you go anywhere in the world and there are multiple supporters wearing their shirts and they've been supporters for years and years. Um, so Manchester City have built that very quickly with a, with a huge injection of capital and, and good business acumen. There's no reason why Wolverhampton can't 
attain the same thing if they with this model they've got. And you know, Ruben Neves is a good example there. They sign Ruben Neves for uh, 16 million euros. They pay him very small wages by championship standards because players at that level in Portugal are not highly paid at all. I forget what the exact numbers are, but I wrote a piece about it last season. If people want to go and have a look, but uh, you know, he was on a minimal salary at Porto. Um, if they wanted to sell him now. I think they could get 75, 80 million um, for him in the uh, in the January market. I don't think their 120 million valuation is unrealistic if he continues to to develop the way he is. So, so let's say they, they get 100 million for him. That's 84 million euros straight profit on one player. And there's no shortage of those players available to them. They're going to carry on picking up high quality talented players at good prices because they've got good people advising them and that's a massive weapon to have if you know you can you can bring in better quality players at your opposition than your opponents at lower prices you're always going to you're always going to be an advantage and you, that's a great starting base to work from another important factor as well duncan of course is that with a young player uh, who's got a lot of talent a lot of potential they want to play in the first team and if they go to the likes of the top 4 top 6 they will expect to be on the bench if they're lucky until they you know, become either essential via an injury or play themselves into a starting place, which they then have to keep. And in the case of Ruben Neves, he played in the championship and played out, was outstanding, played every game and continues to play every game in the Premier League now because he's earned himself that right. So you're selling a club to a young player um, who's coming in at a relatively low fee stroke salary. The the actual attraction of knowing you're going to be playing week in, week out, it's probably more important than what you're being paid because you know that your career is all ahead of you and you've got time to go to the bigger clubs. And what clubs like Manchester United, City, Liverpool, etc., Chelsea as well, can't do is guarantee, as we've seen well <laughs> from experience with regards to the lack of players coming through their academy, um, they can't guarantee players that, that, that element of what they really need, which is to actually be playing first-team football. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And, and again, Nevis, great example. There's so many complaints about him because he played so well for Wolves and because he was sourced by Mendes from, from other championship clubs. He was actually offered to Premier League clubs and other championship clubs before he signed for Wolves and they turned him down because he wasn't prominent enough at Porto. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. You either, you either um, trust the people who present players to you um, if they've got a good track record, or you you sort out your own scouting so you you can you can see and identify that that player, um, even though he's not a a, a starter uh, in a lesser league in inverted commas, is actually a top talent. Okay. A quick footnote to all of that, um, with regards to young players coming through and their motivation for what they want to be, etc. At a big club, um, I watched a game. Um, between the under-23 sides of Brighton, Hove Albion and Manchester City uh, about three weeks ago, in which Brighton uh, won 5-0 with their academy side against, apparently, the best club in the country. And the difference in uh, both application, motivation and execution of game plan, etc., etc., was palpable in that match. I didn't see a single Manchester City player that I thought could make the Brighton team, never mind bottom half Premier League first team. And so if that's the kind of uh, attitude that you're going to get or the, um, the lack, if you like, of planning that you're getting at Manchester City with regards to recruiting young players, that you're 
getting the opposite of at Wills, then Wills will thrive. Well, talking of Manchester City, Ian, that was fabulous for my link. Um, we are going to uh, give you some transfer news. Duncan, hit me. Well, don't actually hit me. Just tell me. You're too far away to hit. <laughs> and you're too big as well. <laughs> How is that? <laughs> yeah. There, uh, yes, it's um, it's about uh, uh, Tange uh, um who Manchester City fans should have uh, noticed uh, playing against him in centre midfield for Leon last week. Um had an excellent performance in that match. Um, most notably, his um, his, pa- his passing to set up chances for Leon, um, the uh, Memphis Depay um, chance, which should have made it three 0 in the second half, came from from his run through the midfield and uh, and long pass to set him through. Um, he's a 21 year old um, France under 21 international, only been at Leon for a season. Um, actually made his competitive debut for them just just over a year ago. Um, Manchester City aren't the only club interested in him by any stretch of the imagination. He's he's caught the attention of essentially the the, the entire top tier of uh, of European football, um, and I think a battle is going to ensue over who gets his signature because he has a combination of sort of the physical um, strength in midfield very good tight control and dribbling skills and um, an eye for a pass also tactical intelligence and you can see why he's a player who would, would appeal to Pep Guardiola who as we know um, wanted to strengthen in that area of the field last January wasn't able to want to strengthen in the summer wasn't able to and as long as uh, Manchester City are um, chasing and under pressure to uh, achieve things in the Premier League and the Champions League Guardiola will be pushing to get a player in that position this coming January. So um, watch out for him in the Champions League. He's a, he's a very interesting and enjoyable player to watch. And interestingly as well, Duncan, it was Manchester City central midfielder who are very much at fault for both the Leon goals um, in that Champions League tie, which they lost. Uh, Fernandinho in particular, who is the player who Pep Guardiola recognises is you know of great value to him in his first 11 now, but is, is ageing and needs to have a long-term replacement. Um, someone who can be as dominant and be as influential. Um, and I think uh, that that's why uh, that, you know, Mbele is going to be a very interesting play for them. Okay, well, moving on to the quickfire round. This week, uh, in the spirit of, for the oldies, the Ryder Cup, and for the young ones, FIFA Ultimate Team, because FIFA's obviously will release this week, we're going to ask the guys to come up with, first of all, Ian, a UK-based five-a-side team, and Duncan, a European-based five-a-side team. So, we're going to do it play for player, and we're going to start with you, Ian. Goalkeeper, who's in the nets? Well, named in the uh, FIFA uh, FIFA Pro Team of the Year uh, uh, in uh, London this week, it's got to be David De Gea for me. Um, If he can defend the big goal that uh, well, I'm I'm sure five-a-side is going to be uh, constant clean sheets for... uh, for Team Europe. Yeah, uh, def- sorry, team, Pre- team Premier League, I should say. Team Premier League. You definitely want him in that team. Duncan, who's your goalie? Yeah, I'm jealous of Ian there because I think De Gea, the, his reaction saves are absolutely ideal for five-a-side football. So you're not going to get many past them. Um, I would go for Thibaut Courtois, um, top goalkeeper in the World Cup, now at Real Madrid. Um, maybe five-a-side is not the best for him because he's um, such a tall individual, but 
by the same token, he's such a big individual, you're going to struggle to get the ball past him. If we're, talking about, if we're talking about size, surely Neville Southall would be the best guy to <laughs> just stick him back in I, there. I, I'm not sure he's at, <laughs> playing in Europe at the moment, unfortunately, Johnny. <laughs> just lie him in front. Just lie him in front of the goal. Is that what you're saying, Johnny? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have um, to say, Johnny, I have to say that Thibaut Courtois is an excellent, in fact, very, very, very accomplished golfer. So if you were going to do five aside and then five aside on the on the course, then Courtois would be up there in the first picks. Who are you going to have at the back, Ian? Well, you see, I'm, I'm going to go for the diamond, classic diamond formation in the five aside team. So I'm going to go one, two, one. Mm-hmm. And my, uh, my anchor will be N'Golo Conte from Chelsea, who, you know, as has been said many times, if there was a comet coming towards the earth, you just have to send him out and intercept it. Uh, it would be no problem to him. I think it would be all over that uh, last third of the field, taking on anyone that uh, Duncan might want to throw uh, at him, uh, with the help of my, obviously, next couple of picks. But let's wait for them. I like that. I like that. Not, not going for a defender, going for someone a bit more mobile. That's good for five sides, Ian. Tactical genius there, Duncan. What are you going to go for? I, I'm going to build from the front. I do, I do my five-a-side teams from the front, and I'm going to have Neymar in in my team. Um, I think the that game, the futsal game, um, which is what he grew up playing, is ideal for his uh, his, his skill set. Um, so to have res- reservations about him in living aside, but five-a-side ideal. Ian. Uh, who you got in midfield? Well, so I'm going to have to um, you know, rebut on that one as well and say I'm so pleased that Duncan's chosen Neymar because he'll be falling out <laughs> of N'Golo's pocket. Uh, well, no, he'll be diving out of N'Golo's pocket. And uh, especially if we don't actually have a referee uh, you know, in this uh, little five-a-side match, then uh, Neymar's going to be completely nullified by the, the great N'Golo. Um, so on the left side... Luigi Kalina's going to do this for us. He's going to reference. So. Okay, I'll let, okay, we'll take Kalina and all day long. So on the left side um, of my uh, midfield two, I'm having Mo Salah uh, because he has the close control and also the pace to run inside, and uh, he's got that particular low back lift stroke. Uh, he can go one on one and just chip. Um, a goalkeeper even at five aside, I think. So I think he's going to be a source of uh, many a goal in the 15-0 win that uh, the EPL will record against Europe. Duncan, who's your next player? I'm not even going to ask you about position because I know you just do the opposite. In the spirit of Duncan just doing what he wants in the transfer in the, in the um, quickfire round. I'm quite pleased that Ian's picked Salah because he's, he's now the man who scored the worst, um, best goal. <laughs> 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 as voted by Liverpool fans and Egyptians everywhere. Um, <laughs> or even just Egyptian Liverpool fans. <laughs> I, uh, I, so given it's a Ryder Cup team, I probably should have Gareth Bale in because Gareth Bale enjoys playing golf more than he does football. But I'm going to go for um, the obvious choice, which is Lionel Messi. Um, you have that understanding with Neymar from playing together and, again, that ability to play in tight spaces that's... Um, so important in this kind of game. So it's not a bad front two to have. Not bad at all. Ian, who's your other midfield player? Well, this is a difficult one because obviously Sal's very attacking, Johnny, so I've got to be careful with um, helping Angola out with these defensive duties now that Duncan's thrown in uh, Leo Messi. So um, I'm going to go with uh, maybe a slightly surprising choice. I'm going to go with um, Angola's midfield partner at Chelsea and, and that Jorginho. Um I think he's shown himself to be incredibly versatile 
uh, albeit um, maybe not as creative as Chelsea fans would like him to be in that position. But his ability to um, move in the field is undoubted. Um, he obviously um, recorded that passing record last weekend uh, in the goalless draw with West Ham. And I think in five-a-side, uh, the pass is king given the limited space. So I'm going to put N'Golo and Jorginho in the same team with Salah. No space for James Milner, Ian? It's five aside, mate. You know, I, I might put him up front. I've not decided yet. <laughs> Duncan? I am very pleased to hear Jorginho's in the team because that means... That means this is becoming he's... just a one-on-one now, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it's not five aside at all. Because <laughs> Ian's now condemned his team to passing the ball in circles for... <laughs> For the, for the entire match, and I, I've got I've got Danny Alves in my side because um, he's used to working as an enforcer for Messi. Um, he's used to stealing those little balls that they pass in, in circles, and Jorginho spe- specialising. And he's a he is a winner beyond all winners. So um, yeah, this is looking good for for Team Europe. <laughs> team uh, Britain, uh, Ian. Right, so um, my final choice, again, we've got to remember this is five-a-side, so you don't necessarily need a prolific out-and-out striker. So, for instance, Harry Kane might be the obvious choice for a lot of people listening out there, but at five-a-side, I, I think Harry Kane's going to be very ineffective. I think you need uh, a small, nippy guy who's good in tight situations, who knows where the goal is and who can score, but also can contribute to tracking back a little bit and uh, taking out Duncan's um, Team Europe. So I'm going to go for David Silva as my oh. captain as well in my team and play him at the foremost point of the diamond because I think he's going to score all those goals, but also he will track back uh, and certainly you know be part of the team as well as be the man who's getting the goals up top. Uh, I think we should say as well that uh, Harry Kane's probably going to be pretty good on a Monday night at the Corn Exchange. He might be, but he's, <laughs> he's playing the Ryder Cup. <laughs> <laughs> against Team Europe, so you got you've got to you got to be it's horses for courses, Johnny. Come on, <laughs> Duncan, complete your team. I I've got a great guy to complete the team. You know, five aside, it's, you always have to have that guy who comes in and, and kicks lumps off uh, off the, um, the the smaller, uh, more skillful opponents. So I'm going to have the man tapping um, Mo Salah on the shoulder as they, as they walk on. <laughs> And you the great, do the great, the great Spanish destroyer Sergio Ramos Ramos. standing in the field, (laughs) scaring the living daylights out of Team. The only thing is, Duncan, you know that five aside, you're not to go above head height, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Kalina's got special rules for Sergio. Oh, we change the rules now, are we? What a surprise! Duncan changes the rules of the quick fire. Johnny named the referee. I chose my team accordingly. Well, well I'll tell you what, Johnny, I think we'd all pay to see that five-a-side match. Yes, we've got Team Europe, Courtois, Ramos, Alves, Messi, Neymar. That is quite the lineup. And Team Britain, we've got De Gea, Kante, Jorginho, Salah and Silva. Let us know on Twitter who you think would win that one. For me, I'm, I'm going to go with Duncan here. I like the fact that the, oh, the, the players that have been coached by Guardiola, these guys that are comfortable with the Rondo, I think, I think they'd come good in the end. Can we put this out to the listeners to to tweet us their five-a-side team for both Team Europe and Team GB, yeah, and yeah. see who see who comes up. I think that's a, that's going to be a good uh, show. I don't think that I don't think that's fair, Ian, because you've got a Liverpool player in it, as we know. Any of these pop, <laughs> 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 just get five Liverpool players. <laughs> 
all, all winning the Pushkas Award for the best goal. Um, <laughs> you'll be happy. That, you'll be happy that James Milner gets into that one, though, Jens. So I would very well. As I said, if it was a six aside, James would definitely make it. But in five aside, it's a bit more difficult. Um, yes. Well, you know, I think that's one of our better quick fires of recent times. Actually, it's um, it's a fascinating one, uh, even if it's not golf. Maybe we should get the boys to play uh, mini golf or crazy golf. Rather, 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 you know, Ryder Cup. I think we've got enough crazy on this podcast, to be quite frank. Okay, I'm going to draw a line under proceedings because time is pressing on. Um, just a reminder, we are still looking for a sponsor. Just a reminder that we are looking for a sponsor. So if you like the idea of partnering with one of the UK's best football podcasts and talking directly to our listeners about your brand, get in touch through our social media channels. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter and even have our own Transfer Window account at Transfer Podcast. We're trying to build a community on that account, so everyone who follows will also get a follow back. If you want to speak to us directly, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane, and most importantly, our pundits are at Duncan Castles and at Garbo SJ. So get tweeting us with your five-a-side Team Europe's and Team Britain's. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review, as this helps us reach as many listeners as possible. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm. I won't be here, I'll be in Tenerife, so Ian will be on hosting duties. Uh, So enjoy that, Ian. Until next time, thanks for listening.